Tonight we continue in Philippians. Last week we looked at uh, background to Philippians, the what, the when, the where, the why, all those questions about what led Paul to pen this letter that now is in our New Testament. And tonight we're going to look at the first 11 verses. When I was growing up, for most of my childhood, one of my, I can't remember if it was a Christmas or a birthday present, uh, my aunt and uncle got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated for Kids. And so every time the Sports Illustrated for Kids came, somewhere around the middle, um, they would have a profile of uh, some certain athlete. And in there, there would be a pull-out poster. I'm OCD about magazines as I am about books, so I never pulled the poster out. But the poster was in there. And on the back of the poster, it would have like, fun facts about their life or their career so far and then it would always have in like the bottom right corner write to so and so at this address and so I thought well I'm writing to every athlete ever featured in Sports Illustrated for kids I wrote to three I cannot remember one but the two I do remember writing to were Troy Aikman um, who used to be the quarterback for the Cowboys and Shaquille O'Neal and so I sat down and I wrote and I think in both letters I trash talked these athletes because they didn't play for teams I liked But I sent them letters, um, and I thought, you know, I don't even know if they're going to read this, but if they do, they're probably going to be pretty impressed and respond. And so sure enough, both Troy Aikman and Shaquille O'Neal, the other guy was a uh, dirt bike rider, and I can't remember his name, but they did respond. And I got like a letter on their letterhead and like a a picture, um, and I didn't realize at the time until I was a little older that they didn't actually sign it. It was just kind of stamped on there. But I thought when I got those return letters back, I thought, man, we are on the verge of becoming best friends like pen pal sounded a little weird in third grade but I was like look if Troy Aikman's writing me weekly to see how my life's going I'm doing this thing turns out they never wrote back after that and I never wrote them back because I was like what do you say back after that I don't know how to do that like I don't know what to tell this guy next Um, how much does he need to know about my family so they never they never once responded again They didn't call or write me to offer consolation when I got rejected from going to the University of North Carolina. They didn't send their best wishes when I got engaged and married to Kristen. Uh, And I guess their baby shower gifts for Leighton and Ramsey are lost in the mail. Um, Because I wrote to them, but there was no sense in which the two guys that I wrote to ever knew or to this day know that I exist. Someone else on their behalf opened that letter read that letter, went, man, this is cute, let's send this kid something, stamped, an, uh, stamped a signature on there, folded it, and sent it back to me. And it, I think they may have had something there about how you could send back like $10 to become part of their fan club. I was like, this is a real one-sided thing. Um, you should have sent me $10 with all the money you make. Um, there was no sense of friendship. There was no sense of knowing one another. There was no sense of an ongoing relationship where we would keep in touch. But tonight, as we look at, it, at, look at Philippians, and we read Paul's words, we get, we're going to see the exact opposite experience of what I had in writing to these athletes that were featured in SI for Kids. We see a man in Paul who knew and loved the people he was writing to in Philippi, and he wanted to see them thrive and flourish in their faith. And because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who's still alive and still active and still as eternal as he's always been, working in the lives of believers, the unique thing about reading Philippians is this. 
in the same way that it was meant to encourage those believers to thrive and flourish in their faith, so it serves to encourage us. And as we read these words in 2018, we find ourselves feeling just as known, just as loved, and just as encouraged by the Apostle Paul's words. Let's pray. Father, tonight we open the scriptures and we're reminded again of the living, active power of your word. These are not just ancient manuscripts that were transcribed off of scrolls and translated into different languages. This is the living and acting, active word that you've spoken. It's the truth you've delivered once and for all for those who would know and trust you. And so, Father, we're not dealing just with history we're dealing with the present moment we're dealing not only with paul's concern for the philippians then we're dealing with your ongoing concern for your bride the church even now and so as we consider paul's words both for the believers then and for us now will we find ourselves encouraged will we find ourselves challenged and will we find ourselves changed because when we read your word we're not just reading words on a page we're encountering you And when we encounter you, we are changed. Would you do that by the power of your spirit? In Christ's name, amen. Paul opens with the first 11 verses of Philippians. says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, For you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you read all of Paul's letters, Paul opens most letters following the same format that you have here in Philippians. It's a salutation or a greeting followed by a brief or maybe a longer period of thanksgiving for the church he's writing to and then he offers a prayer on behalf of those believers that are gathered in that church there are a few exceptions like galatians he's so mad he kind of just skips over part of the warm fuzzies and goes right after them for what they're involved in but with philippians you see one of the more fuller expressions of paul following this ancient letter writing custom of a greeting thanksgiving and a prayer And we talked last week that Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Philippians to continue growing in their faith and pursuing Christ's likeness. Because as Moises Silva points out in his commentary on Philippians, the Philippian believers were experiencing severe spiritual problems. They had lost confidence in their ability to maintain their Christian confession. And so what you see as Paul opens this letter is he packs as much encouragement as he can into the first 11 verses the first two paul says paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ 
Paul's first note of encouragement is hidden in the first two verses. We often read Paul's letters in the New Testament and we skip over the introduction because it sounds pretty similar in all of Paul's letters. I'm Paul, I view myself this way, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle, I'm commissioned by Christ, however he words it, and then he just kind of says, hey, how are y'all? Grace and peace to you. And then we're like, well, let's get to the good stuff, especially Philippians. Like Philippians is chock full of those coffee mug verses. And so we're like, get me to the parts that I know that I've seen. But Paul actually hides his first bit of encouragement. He didn't hide it. We just read past it really quickly. Is in the first verse. When he greets the overseers and the deacons in the church at Philippi. How is this encouraging? If you remember back to Acts 15 and 16 where we read last week about the church starting. Or you're familiar with how the church at Philippi came to its beginnings. It started with. Some with Lydia, who was from somewhere on the Asian continent, who was a fashion mogul sitting outside of the city gates by the river for a time of prayer and worship with other God-fearing Greeks and Romans. The second member of the church was a demon-possessed slave girl, and the third member of the church was a Roman jailer. That is not really the best fantasy draft to start a church with. Like, you don't consider that you may are going to that you're going to make it that long if those are the three you start with but we know that when paul writes this letter that church has survived and thrived for 10 years and in the process of 10 years god in his goodness and in his faithfulness has raised up leaders to serve as overseers and as deacons I know for us, we read this, and we have so much that's written both in the business world and in the Christian church world about how to create a leadership pipeline and how to grow leaders and develop leaders and multiply leaders and leadership, leadership, leadership. It seems to be all anybody really talks about if you're nerdy and talk to other pastors about church stuff. But what's fascinating to me, that as far as we know, None of the leadership that was raised up was put into place because the Philippian church was relatively slick in their marketing or had the latest and greatest leadership principles and ingenuity at their disposal. But what I think you see, if you kind of trace it out and you let your just understanding of life in the church fill in the blanks over those intervening 10 years between the start of the church and Paul's writing of this letter, I feel like part of how all these leaders were raised up so that there were multiple elders and multiple deacons in place to serve and shepherd the church is this. The Philippians just took seriously the call to live out the gospel wherever it was that they lived, they worked, and they played. Leadership wasn't just handed off to the polished and the well-spoken. Leadership was a communal activity where everyone pushed each other to take seriously the call to live out all the implications of the gospel. And in that process, God honored them and raised up leaders who could love and shepherd his church well. All of this, all of this was a result of Jesus' overflowing goodness and grace to his bride, the church. And it would have been and should have been a cause for rejoicing among the philippians and my prayer for us at restoration is much the same 
Not that we would look at the business world and go, there's nothing we can learn there. Not that we would go, well, we're not going to have any structure or any system in place for people to grow and develop. But I really feel like the best leaders for churches come from people who just commit themselves to faithfully loving and serving other believers week in and week out in the local church context. And as that happens, rather than trying to cherry pick or go off the appearance of man as we're so prone to do in picking people to put in leadership positions, God begins to reveal the hearts of the people that he's molding and he's shaping to faithfully shepherd and lead his people. So we don't put those two things in at odds with one another. But we don't also want to be about baptizing business principles in the name of the gospel to see leaders raised up. We want to see people raised up because their hearts are being changed and molded by the gospel to have a deep love for Christ and his church. And if you can get a church where that is the understood goal of everyone, not just those who are maybe gifted for leadership, but the goal for everyone involved is to have their hearts and their minds and their attitudes shaped by the gospel of Jesus, then you have an environment and a culture where healthy leaders will always be rising up to take their roles. And then Paul goes on in 3-8 and he says this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul, in verses 3 through 8, he's laying the groundwork for everything else he's going to cover in the remainder of the letter of Philippians. So I'm not going to preach everything that he's saying here because he's setting the stage for stuff we're going to get to over the coming weeks. But what Paul does in these six verses is Paul reflects on the Philippians' past contributions to his gospel work and looks forward to God's continued work both in their own individual lives and in the life of the church. Remember, if you were here with us last week, we said Paul uses the theme of joy as a catalyst to get the Philippian believers to take seriously the ongoing work of sanctification in their lives. The only way for true joy to be grown in us is for the character of Christ to be more fully formed in us. And so Paul's not talking about joy for joy's sake. Paul is talking about joy as a way of redirecting the Philippian believers' gaze off of their ability to hold fast their Christian confession and getting them to put their gaze back on Christ, who through the Spirit and through His Word will conform them to His image. So Paul, in verses 3-5 through five and verse 7, recounts to the Philippians his ongoing thanks to God each time he remembers them in his prayers. And how does Paul remember them? Does he remember them with drudgery? Does he remember them with regret? Does he remember them with angst? No. Paul tells them lovingly that he remembers them with joy. Why joy, Paul? 
When you're having to write to encourage them, why would you remember them with joy? And Paul tells us it is because they have been partnering with him in the gospel from the first day until the writing of the letter. From the first day that Lydia put her faith in Christ by the river outside of Philippi, up until that moment when Paul in jail in Rome is writing to them, they have remained closely connected to Paul and his ministry and they have been faithful supporters of him both through prayer and through financial contributions even though we know from other bits of Paul's letters that the church at Philippi had some of the lowest giving coming in they were still sacrificially generous and so Paul remembers their partnership and he remembers it with joy and he reminds them of this Because this is confirmation of the genuineness of their faith. The very faith that they're beginning to think maybe they don't have the strength to hold on to. The very Christian confession that they're afraid is slipping out of their hands. Paul writes and reminds them to say, from the first day until now, there's never been a moment in my prayers for you or in my concern for you that I have doubted the sincerity of your faith in the gospel. And I have all of this prayer, I have all of these prayers that you prayed on my behalf. I have all of these sacrificial gifts that you've sent. I have this fresh gift that Epaphroditus has just brought to me as proof of your love and care. Not just for me, but Paul is very careful to unpack this so that he helps the Philippian believers know that Paul doesn't primarily see their gifts to him as gifts for Paul so much as they are gifts to continue the work of the gospel. Paul wants them to see that everything that they're doing is driving the gospel forward. And it is meant to encourage and strengthen their weak hands. Also, Paul says that they have been with him both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They remained committed to Paul's gospel ministry, whether he was free and roaming about helping plant and encourage churches, or whether he was bound and in prison in Rome. They never wavered in their support of Paul based off of their understanding of his ability to produce, as it were. They were not holding quarterly performance reviews for Paul's work. They just trusted that whether Paul was in prison or Paul was free, whether he was making his defense before the emperor in Rome or whether he was entertaining Jews from the local synagogue, they trusted and they can remain committed to Paul even when he had seasons where there was little to no production, as it were. And this, for Paul, altogether paints a very vivid and beautiful picture of the sincerity of the Philippian believers' commitment to the gospel. But verse 6, verse 6 really is where everything shifts because verse 6 serves as an adrenaline shot of encouragement to the Philippians as they, were, they would have been struggling to maintain their Christian witness. Paul says in 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul thanks them, tells them that he remembers them with joy, and then he comes back to that in 3 through 5, he talks about that, he goes to it in 7. But 6, 
Six is where he pivots. Six is where he gives them the basis for his confidence, not only in their past faithfulness to the gospel, but in their present faithfulness and in their future, future faithfulness. Easy for me to say. And it is this. His confidence lies in the commitment of God for God to do what he has promised in the life of his children and his church. Silva, again in his commentary, says this, The Philippians needed to hear that their growth in sanctification, already evident through their participation and partnership in the gospel, was really God's work, and he would not fail to bring it to perfection. We know from other of Paul's writings that Paul had a deep-held belief, deeply held belief in God's sovereignty or God's supreme power and authority to accomplish his will. And Paul knew that there was nothing, I mean, we know it from Romans 8, Paul knew that there was nothing human and there was nothing spiritual that would ultimately be able to stop God from accomplishing his will. Therefore, the Philippians should draw encouragement and joy from this truth, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Paul grounds his confidence in their past faithfulness, in their present faithfulness, and in their future faithfulness to the gospel in this. God cannot be stopped from doing what he is committed to doing in the life of his children and in the life of his church. So do not lose heart and do not let your hands grow weak in the work, Philippian church, because God is more committed to his mission than you are, and that is good news. That's where you're going to hang your hat for your future perseverance in the face of the struggles and the trials and the suffering you're going to go through. This is where you have to hang your hat. So all of this remembrance and thankfulness brings Paul to a point in verse 8 of deep desire to be with the church at Philippi. It's a church that he himself says he carries in his heart, meaning that his whole life and his thoughts are bound up with this group of believers in Philippi. And in verse 8, he actually puts himself under oath by calling God as his witness, witness, there's not an H in there, God as his witness as to how much he longs for being with these fellow believers. Paul says in 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider the affection of Christ Jesus? The affection of a man who would pray in the garden, not my will, but your will be done, and then go to the cross to redeem the wayward sons and daughters of God. This is no mere fleeting affection. This is no mere surface level, I kind of like you, you kind of like me, let's see how things go over the next few weeks. Paul is communicating a deep-seated love and yearning to be with the Philippian church. What we know from this letter, from, if you compare it to all the other letters that Paul wrote, is that there was something unique about the place the Philippian church held in Paul's heart. Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm not giving you unnecessarily, unnecessary flattery, and I'm not giving you false assurances, and I'm not blowing smoke, as it were. Everything I have said is true, and it is bound up in my desire to be with you. It would be one thing if Paul runs through the first seven verses of Philippians and then says, do with it what you will. I don't really care 
But I've got other letters to write. I've got other people to minister to. But Paul wants to drive home the point to the Philippian believers that he does love them, that he does care for them, that he is committed to them, and he has an affection for them that is on par with and rivals or is close to the affection of Christ Jesus for his church. Those are heavy words for Paul to write. And as I was reading that, I thought, maybe like you did just now about the notebook. Maybe not. Maybe you weren't thinking about the notebook at all. But you remember the scene in the notebook where Noah and Allie are talking, and Noah is telling her over and over and over again about his love for her and how while he's been gone, he's written to her, and he really does love her. And she thinks that he is just saying this because he's now back in town, and he wants her back. And he tells her, I know that I've written you every day. And there's that scene in the movie where Allie confronts her mother about it. And Allie's mother brings out this bound-up stack of letters. All letters written by Noah to Allie to convey his love for her. And it's in that moment that Allie is reminded that everything that Noah has said standing there in front of her is now confirmed because she can see the evidence of it in the letters. She reads them one by one, reading over and over and over again Noah's pledge of undying love for her. And so it is with Paul's letter to the Philippians and his yearning to be with them. When you wrote a letter in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it served as a stand-in for the physical presence of the person being there. It served as a stand-in until the person could be there themselves to talk with you face to face. And so, unlike the notebook where this letter was hidden and not read and tucked away somewhere, we have it, and we know the encouragement it would have served. And it reminded the Philippian believers, as they read through this entire letter, that Paul was not just saying empty words to try to make them feel better. He was communicating from his heart how he really felt about these people. And then Paul goes on in 9 through 11, and he prays for them. This is his prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The one thing that blows me away about how Paul transitions out of verse 8 and into verses 9 through 11 is this. Paul does not let his deep-seated belief and affirmation of the sovereignty of God lull him into inaction. Paul doesn't say in verse 6, I affirm the sovereignty and the power of God to do what God will do. Therefore, have at it. I don't have to worry about you anymore. God's sovereign. He's going to do it. What Paul does is he lets the truth of God's sovereignty drive him to pray. And the prayer that Paul lays out in verses 9 through 11 is not a reactive prayer, which is how most of our prayers are. Most of our prayers are built not in a proactive way, asking God for things. Most of our prayers are reactionary where something has happened and we need God to do something for us. 
Maybe now we're all praying proactive prayers because we want Florence to stay out at sea. Okay, so maybe over the past few hours you started to pray some proactive prayers. But Paul prays proactively. And what he prays for in our modern understanding of how we approach prayer sounds so foreign. But if you're tracking with Paul's thoughts and you're tracking with Paul's logic, this prayer makes complete sense. Paul prays that the Philippians would continue to grow in their sanctification now as they look forward to the day of Christ's return. Paul spent the first eight verses reminding them of their past faithfulness. And in 9 through 11, he begins to pray for them that they would know the joy now of their ongoing sanctification by looking forward to the future promises of God when Christ returns. So Paul wants the Philippians' love, both for God and for others, to be abounding with knowledge and discernment so that their love will be proven right by their actions. There are right and wrong ways to love people, right? But there are right ways to display your love for someone. And then there are wrong ways to display your love. We will celebrate seven years married tomorrow, my wife and I. It would be, it doesn't matter how often or how sincerely she told me she loved me. If she made me a coconut-infused watermelon cake, that's the wrong way to love me because I can't have those things. It doesn't matter how sincere she would say, I love you and I'm so glad that we made it seven years together. That is not the right way to love me. The right way is to make a banana pudding and a strawberry cobbler. Anyway. Paul wants their love to abound in knowledge and discernment. Look, we live in a culture and in a society that says love wins or God is love, all these things. Those are in part true. But God tells us what right love for himself and right love for others looks like, and it's contained in his word. And so Paul wants the Philippian believers to not love people incorrectly because if you don't love people rightly, if you don't love people with a love that's informed by knowledge and discernment, you can honestly love someone straight into hell. Because knowledge and discernment would mean that we have to be able to say what's right and what's wrong. We cannot just love for love's sake. We love with knowledge and discernment. Paul wants right love to be matched by right action so that the surrounding neighbors, their surrounding neighbors in Philippi would see the beauty of Jesus. Right love informed by knowledge and discernment that is matched by right action in the church is still to this day one of the most compelling witnesses for the truth of the gospel that we confess with our lips. And that's what Paul is praying for. Paul's praying for their sanctification to continue, that their love would abound in knowledge and discernment. And Paul wants the Philippians through this prayer to realize that their confidence in being found pure and blameless on the day of Christ is rooted in their joyful obedience. This is what will fill them with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love abounding in knowledge and discernment that leads to right action should lead to joyful obedience. And Paul says this is where you hang your hat as well 
if you want to be confident of being found pure and blameless on the day of Christ. So when we take 9 through 11 and we go back and read verse 6, I don't know about you, but that leaves me with a little bit of an upset stomach because there's some tension there, right? Like I'm a peacemaker by nature and I don't, like I want to figure out how we can resolve this as quickly as possible. Because what Paul seems to be advocating in 6 is this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then he says this in 9 and 10, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and, and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, meaning live in a right way, so that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul is affirming two fundamental truths. But they are two truths that for the believer have to reside in tension, and you cannot resolve it. The tension is this. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. And that will always frustrate you on one end of the spectrum or the other. God's sovereignty will often frustrate us because we still, with the remnants of the fall in our brains and in our bodies, we still think we're better at running the world than God is. And oftentimes our own responsibility will frustrate us because we know every day how often we fail to measure up to our own lowered standards, much less the holy, righteous standards of God. So where does that leave us? Paul knew where it would leave the Philippians and he knew where it would leave us. In a place where we have to live dependent on God. If you can resolve that tension, you can live without needing to be dependent on God. You can either let God's sovereignty override man's responsibility and you can fold your hands and say the world will be what it is because God has orchestrated everything. Or you can let man's responsibility overrun God's sovereignty. And you can say it's up to us. God doesn't care. God isn't interested. God doesn't really have a say in what's happening here. But if you can allow yourself, like Paul did and like believers down through the ages have, to live in this tension of sovereignty and responsibility, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, you find that you'll be put in a position where you have to live every day dependent on Jesus. And in living dependent on Jesus every day, you find more and more opportunities to make much of the gospel. We cannot let the truth of God's sovereignty lull us into inaction and indifference towards living to make much of Jesus. And we also cannot allow the truth of our responsibility to cause us to lose sight of this truth, that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul writes that in Ephesians 2. And so like Paul, these two truths should be driving us to prayer. Prayer to make sense of how we live as responsible human beings under the sovereign care of a good and loving Father. 
I thought about a scene, I don't know, many of you may not have seen this movie. It's a movie called Orange County. It has Jack Black and Colin Hanks. Maybe you've seen it, maybe not. I cannot commend that movie one way or the other from the pulpit. Anyway, the basis of the movie is that uh, Colin Hanks' character, Sean, wants to go to Stanford to be a writer. And at one point, he's gotten his rejection letter from Stanford, and he's sitting out in the driveway of his mom's house with his girlfriend in the passenger seat. And this is a conversation that they have. His girlfriend Ashley says, you know how you told me that every night before you go to bed, you'd pray that you get into Stanford? Sean replies, yeah. His girlfriend Ashley says, well, the other night I prayed for something too, Sean. What was that? I prayed that you wouldn't get into Stanford. Why? Well, I didn't really think it was going to work. And if we're honest, this is how we approach our prayers. We don't pray for love, abounding in knowledge and discernment. We don't pray for the ability to choose the best thing available to display the beauty and worth of Christ. We don't pray that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that, lead, that comes from Jesus and leads to the praise and glory of God. I mean, when was the last time you prayed that for someone? The hard thing about being someone who's living to make much of Jesus in this life is this. It's easier to adopt Sean's girlfriend's mindset of praying thinking it's not really going to work. Of offering half-hearted prayers from a half-hearted faith because we're just not really sure how this is all going to work anyway. So let's not go all in on believing and trusting God with our prayers. Let's just hold a little bit back. Let's pray not 100% sure that he's even going to hear or answer. What Paul gives us in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, is a full-hearted prayer with full belief that not only will God in his goodness and in his sovereignty bring this about, but that the people he's praying for would find the courage and the wisdom and the love and the discernment to do what he's praying for them. And so if we're going to continue the work that God has for us by allowing joy to serve as a catalyst for growth, much like it did for the Philippians, then we need to be aware of what I believe are some threats both internal and external to the church. And these could be both individually or corporately. Internally, I think the dangers we have to be aware of are this, things that would derail us from pursuing our ongoing sanctification so that we would grow in our joy. I think the first thing we have to be aware of is a lack of personal Bible reading and prayer. If you're going to grow in joy through your sanctification, then you have to be people, we have to be a church who values reading the scriptures and praying. Reading the scriptures, believing that they're true, believing it's the word of God delivered to us without error so that we can fully trust the message that's there and then praying like we believe that message is true. And the second threat is this, that we would be people who struggle to honestly confess our sins. Sanctification and deepening joy in the Lord does not come by hiding our sinfulness. It comes by owning our sinfulness so that we could see the depths of the grace and the love that Christ has for us. It is the paradox of living in right relationship with Jesus. 
that the more we're able to see and confess our sins, the more we see the depths of his love and care for us. And so we are more readily able in a moment through the Spirit's quickening to say no to those things that we often said yes to because we're gaining deeper insight into the love and care that Christ has for us. But if you will not confess sin, if you will not walk in accountability with other people, there is a certain point where everything begins to break down and the deepening joy, not only in your own life, but in the life of the church, begins to wither. Because you may think, well, unconfessed sin only really affects me. But everything from the New Testament about the life of the church says that how you are choosing to live your life as a member of the church has a direct effect on my living my life for the glory and the fame of Jesus. So we have to be people who confess our sins well. And I think the third threat that we have that would short-circuit our joy and our sanctification is this. We just don't share our faith. Depending on which studies you read, the most recent one, I believe if I'm correct, says that the average Christian will share their faith twice a year. Twice a year. There is something unique about being willing to risk opening your mouth to share the truths of the gospel with non-believers that works to sanctify your heart and your trust in Christ. I can't explain it, but I know that it's true because I've experienced and if you've ever shared your faith once, maybe twice, maybe three times, or however many times you've shared it, there is a unique thing that happens when you leave that conversation where you feel, maybe initially you feel like, God blew that. Why does God ever entrust me to speak to someone about him? But more often than not, if you share your faith, you find a deepening joy in the person and work of Christ. You find yourself smiling. You find yourself going, yeah, I do believe the truth. I do believe in the only thing that is the hope for the person I just shared the gospel with. And it feels good to be someone who's actively sharing their faith. And it increases my joy and my love for Jesus. Those are all internal threats. I think from, uh, I agree, which is no surprise, with D.A. Carson, who says that there are these three external threats our ongoing joy and sanctification in the gospel the first is this secularization and it does not mean the doing away with religion overall what carson means and what i agree with is this is that secularization is the process whereby the gospel is rendered unimportant not unnecessary just unimportant and religion is then squeezed into the periphery of our life meaning we don't make any calendar decisions based off of the importance of the gospel. We make every calendar decision, we make every financial decision, we make every decision in life based off of the fact that the gospel is unimportant and religion exists on the periphery of our lives. The second threat is self-indulgence, which Carson explains means that we would rather be comfortable and secure than self-sacrificing and giving which would be the natural result of the process of secularization if the gospel is rendered unimportant and religion is pushed to the periphery of our lives then why in the world would we be self-sacrificing and giving we will always choose comfort and security when the gospel moves out of the center and into the periphery of our lives and the last thing that 
Carson sees as a threat and I see as agree with is this idea of a philosophical pluralism, meaning that there is no one who can claim to know any sort of objective truth. Therefore, the only heresy is the view that there is such a thing as heresy. Many of you probably saw the Nike ad that ran with Colin Kaepernick ahead of uh, or during the NFL's opening game on Thursday night. I'm not here to debate the politics of that, but I will tell you this. The slogan captures the spirit of the age and it captures the philosophical pluralism that Carson wrote about. Believe in something. Just, some, any, just, just believe in something. That's philosophical plural. Don't, don't say that what you believe is the most right. Don't say that what you believe is the only truth, but just believe in something. What that does is it makes those of us who take the call of our faith seriously, when we step out in faith to share, our, to share the gospel, it gets us labeled narrow-minded, it gets us labeled bigoted, it gets us labeled unloving and hateful. But the call for us is not to cave to philosophical pluralism, is to keep being faithful to share the good news of what Christ has done. The outlook for our own growth and the growth of the church overall would be incredibly bleak if it weren't for the following two truths. God has a proven commitment laid down in Scripture and throughout history from the first century on. And this commitment is proven most visibly in the cross that he will bring about that which he has willed to happen. And nothing and no one can stop it. And God has given the, his spirit to us as believers to empower us to live lives of ongoing sanctification. Therefore, we bear responsibility for how we choose to live our lives. If it was just up to us and our natural power and faculties to live on mission for the gospel, the future of our own growth and the growth of the church would be bleak. But because God is committed in his sovereignty to bring about that which he has willed, and because he has given us the spirit which empowers us to live lives that make much of him, the future of our own growth and the growth of the church is not bleak, but it is as promising as it's ever been. Because God hasn't failed yet, and he's not going to fail ever. So we go boldly and faithfully. And so tonight we also remember the work that God has done, the work that God is doing, and the work that God will do through each of us, not only individually, but also corporately through the ministry of Restoration Church. And our hope and our aim and our prayer is to confidently believe with Paul and the Philippians that as we seek to live by the power of the Spirit in us, we really do hang our confidence on this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to, the, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.